my dad came home from work and I was probably about, I don't know, I was, I must have been 10 or 11 and I'd been painting this horrible painting all day of like this dog hunting with a duck, you know, think Eastern North Carolina. Um, and I said, dad, what do you think? I think it's really good. And he was like, well, Rachel, he said, he said do you think I could be an artist? And he said, well, I think some people are incredibly talented and some people work really, really hard. And he said, I think you're going to be one of those people that's going to work really, really hard. <laughs> Rachel Marie Crane Williams believes that story is a pathway into empathy. It is a causeway of understanding and connection to other people. This belief is just one of the amazing perspectives of Rachel's, who is a professor at the University of Iowa in both gender, women's and sexuality studies and the School of Art and Art History. If that wasn't interesting enough, she's also an artist, author, comic nerd, and graphic novelist. As a product of the public education system and a seasoned teacher in prisons and juvenile facilities, she believes in the potential of all people to benefit from transformative experiences and access to education. Get ready to hear Rachel's story in this episode of Design Of, where we talk about the extraordinary things that happen around us every day and the people behind them. I'm your host, Justin Aarons. Enjoy the show. So I grew up in Eastern North Carolina. We moved probably every three or four years because my dad is in the um, the timber business. And um, I ended up going to East Carolina University. And then uh, from there, I went to graduate school at Florida State. Um, and then I was offered a job at the University of Northern Iowa. And um, I honestly, I feel really bad, but I had to look up like, okay, where exactly is Iowa? <laughs> so, um, you know, as a Southeastern person, um, and loved it, you know, came to Cedar Falls, had an incredible year. And it was honestly just by coincidence and luck that a job came up at the University of Iowa and I applied for it and was offered the position. So that's how I've ended up here. Um, awesome. And, you know, the Midwest is a beautiful place to be. It really is. Uh, the, the Middle Coast, as uh, we like to say to the East and West Coasters, right? <laughs> right. So tell me the department that you're in. So I'm in the School of Art and Art History and Studio Art and Painting and Drawing. And then I'm also in Gender, Women's and Sexuality Studies. I'm the chair currently of Gender, Women's and Sexuality Studies. Um, and we have two majors. We have GWIS, gen Gender, Women's and Sexuality Studies, but we also have the Social Justice major, which is really, mm. you know, both of those are near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Um, and that will become more obvious to our listeners as we kind of dig into your story more. But uh, if you could, and I know this is somewhat of an unfair question, can you give sort of a general, um, you know, definition of each one of those areas of concentration and, and you know, kind of what you touch on and, and what you talk about? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, my work has always been interdisciplinary and I began, um, you know, my academic career as an artist. I've been making art since I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper and never imagined actually doing um, anything else really except for teaching. And so, you know, those two things were things that I wanted to pursue. Um, and then when I was in graduate school working on my PhD, I ended up uh, volunteering at a women's prison. And I ended up absolutely loving um, that experience. The, the women um, at Jefferson Correctional Institution, now it's a men's institution. It's in a very rural part of the Panhandle in Florida. Um, they taught me so much about art and about teaching. And really through that, I really became interested in um, issues around incarceration, in particular issues around incarceration with women. 
Wow. So you, you know, he'd made a reference to the fact that you thought it was just going to be a six week program. So, um, can you just uh, go back with me if you could, and can you remember that first day or, or how you felt? Um, cause I've had an experience where, um, in, uh, a men's correctional facility in, in, um, you know, kind of in the middle of Illinois, I went and did, uh, like a shark tank there where they're mm-hmm. taught curriculum and they and they dream about what they're gonna do when they get out. Yeah. And it was, um, I think you understand, uh, this is, it's such otherworldly, right? Because every, uh, I hate doing absolutes, but most people have this bias of what prison must be, right? And it's often either what they read or what they see on TV. So uh, how are you feeling when you first, uh, as, a, as a young student um, going into your first um, facility? Well, you know, it was 1994 and prison at that point was not um, depicted, you know, on television. I mean, there had been obviously there's the prison movie genre, but really, you know, I didn't know very much about um, prisons at all. And, um, you know, it's also at the time when there was a lot of political uh, malarkey about super predators and welfare queens. I mean, there was a lot of... um, sort of divisive stereotyping. And um, so I I had no idea what I was going into. And the prison that I went to, like I said, Jefferson Correctional Institution, Florida has very, um, really rough. I, I mean, the prisons in Florida and really in the South in general, the carceral South is, is harsh. I mean, incredibly harsh. There's definitely a retributive justice component. Um, you know, it's just baked in and they're really based on plantations. Uh, that's sort of the initial, you know, pattern that the prisons in the carceral South sort of draw on. So it was a very harsh um, place and a very divided, you know, definitely an us against them sort of feeling in terms of like the staff and the folks who are incarcerated. Um, and, you know, that's not to say all the staff were horrible or all the folks who were incarcerated were against them. I mean, you know, there's no way to, to use a broad brush when you talk about um, what prison ecosystems look like. But, you know, I drove up and there at the gate. I was 20. I think I was 21, 22. And, um, you know, the officer who was running things basically ignored me. I mean, it was raining. I had this giant pile of art history books because I'd been teaching drawing at the university and thought, well, I'm going to do it just like that. And that was quite wrong. Um, So it was really intimidating, you know, and I went into the classroom and um, I was one of the younger people there. The average age of folks who are incarcerated at least, um, you know, in women's facilities is often in 30s, you know, 34, 35 and so, you know, it was very humbling. I mean, the the women were incredibly kind to me. They were super nice, but I could tell they were very bored and not really buying into it. And so, you know, I just kind of had to step away from, you know, my podium as a teacher, which is not really how I teach, but, and sort of say to them, okay, I can tell you're not buying what I'm selling. Uh, this is going badly. You know, what can I do? What do you want to learn? How do you want to learn? And um, that was a real humbling moment for me. And they were, again, um, my students there taught me so much and really taught me like, you know, that art matters um, in a way that's not academic, you know, that it actually, you know, I, I'd grown up in an academic 
setting as an artist necessarily. And so, you know, everything I knew about art, I knew through teachers, you know, through formal sort of um, experiences. And so to realize that people make art for reasons other than that, um, you know, which sounds really silly, but I just, I, I thought, wow, you know, this is incredible. Um, Because that wasn't your, that wasn't your story or experience, right? So it was. No, I mean, you know, my experience had been, you know, be an artist, get your work in galleries. You know, that means you're a real painter. That's what making art is all about. And, you know, I recognized very quickly that, um, you know, making art was about truly about finding a a freedom, you know, a place to really express um, yourself, to leave sort of your situation in the moment. I mean, now they call that flow, uh, but you know, it really does provide this very different space of liberation. And, you know, the the women in prison said, we want to learn to draw portraits. That's what we want to learn to draw. One, because you can draw a good portrait in prison, you can trade it for things. And at that point, people could still smoke. And, you know, um, so that was actually a commodity. You know, people would say, will you draw a picture of me to send to my kids? Or will you draw Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse? Because my kids love those. And so, you know, the skill of actually being able to do observational drawing was, you know, quite a commodity um, mm. within that prison. And so, uh, you know, realizing that it it was um, really something that uh, it also, the other thing about it is it really, for the women who took it up quite seriously, it gave them sort of this alternative identity. You know, suddenly they weren't people in prison, they were artists. And they were recognized as artists, not only by the women with whom they were incarcerated, but also by the staff. You know, the staff mm. would say, Hey, can you do a portrait of my dog? You know, (laughs) so, and, um, you know, a few of them got out, continued to make art. I mean, that was really exciting. I ended up working with those women for about three years and got quite close to them before I moved. So that also sounds like it gave them, um, that skill set, but also that ability to see themselves even differently. Right. Well, and, you know, I think a good teacher helps students learn how to teach themselves. And so, And, you know, that's what art is all about is you you just do it. You just have to do it. If you want to be a writer, if you want to be an artist, you just have to write. You just have to make art, you know, make music, whatever it is you have to do. You just have to put the time in. I think one thing we talk about in our in the gender, women's and sexuality studies department is really theory, you know, and why theory is made and how theory really reflects life and embodied experiences. So I think, you know, that would be one thing is that, you know, you'd not only read um, really wonderful work, but you'd also understand why is this relevant? How does this connect? Which I think actually in academia is is critical right now. You know, people and actually always has been people have you know, they're not going to learn something if it doesn't apply to their lives. It's not going to stick and it's not going to be interesting. And so, you know, I think praxis is is absolutely um, incredibly important. You know, that idea of, of learning by living, learning by doing. Um, you know, I think that that would be one thing that's at the heart of our department, obviously. And we do a lot of public engagement. You know, we are really interested in helping students find pathways and connecting to sort of meaningful um, you know, meaningful lives. I mean, uh, I think it's really, you know, I try to always tell my students, if you go to college to find a career, um, you're going to be 
you know, probably disappointed in most instances. And often what you end up doing may look very different from what you planned on doing. You know, even if you go into something where there's a very distinct career path, you know, teaching is one of those things right. you you know you're going to be a teacher, you teach, but the the actual experience of doing it is often quite different from what you imagined. So, you know, I sort of say to them, this is about broadening your imagination, being open, learning how to uh, find information, process information, teach yourself, teach others. I love it. So from women's studies and also social impact, uh, you know, that it's always been relevant, right? Uh, but it even feels more relevant now I, for a lack of better ways to frame it. Um, how does that statement land with you? Does that feel true to you or, or, you know, um, how would you, you know, respond to that? Well, I mean, I think there's always been, um, you know, there's always been a need to sort of be engaged with the world. I think right now we're at a really interesting time. Um, you know, I've been working with my students on this idea, is our social contract broken? And there's been moments in history, at least in this country, where it is clear the social contract is broken. It is clear that people are unsatisfied with what's happening with the state. They're unsatisfied with the lives they're sort of um, able to live in whatever economy they're living in. And I think, you know, right now is a really key moment in history. You know, I keep trying to tell my students, pay attention. You know, we've been here before. Um, and so, you know, I, I think um, this is such a cliche, but I think things change, but I also think they stay the same. I mean, I think we, uh, we tend to repeat history and, um, you know, I think being engaged, being awake really is very important, you know, paying attention, what's going on, vote, um, talk to people that you don't know, you know, reach beyond your social circles, really be, be part of the world you know, in a very broad way. I love it. Well, one of the, uh, often when I'm getting ready for these things, I'll write down the words that just keep coming back to me and stand out to me. And, you know, for you, I could say, you know, teacher and artist and author and activist and advocate, right? Um, but something that comes to me that, you know, feels like it is the story arc of your life is I feel like you're a storyteller. <laughs> and so I'd love to, I'd love to explore this concept of story mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, how that uh, is a part of your life. Cause to me, it seems really obvious. Um, uh, so how does story, oh. what does the power of story mean to you? I love this question. Um, I, you know, I have to say, I think stories are really important to us. Um, and that stories are the way we make sense of what's happened to us in the world. And I think the other thing that's interesting about story, and I tell folks, you know, experiences look a lot of different ways. Um, and sometimes they're really fragmented. Sometimes the chronology doesn't work. You know, sometimes you don't have all the details or you're not sure what you have been told, what you remember, what you lived. And if you, you know, remember it right, I mean, memory is always fiction. It's always sort of this elusive um, concept. But I think stories for us are the way we, we make sense of the world. You know, we decide this is what happened and this is what it means to me. You know, I am not a person, you know, I, I don't, I'm an atheist. I don't believe that things happen for a reason. I think things just happen. And then we make 
um, a reason, you know, we sort of fit them into our life. And that in the, in turn, that's how we say, this is what we learned from this, you know, and this is how we grew. Um, so I think stories are incredibly powerful. And I think, you know, we draw on our own stories and the stories of, you know, our ancestors, people we know to sort of um, think it's sort of a way of, uh, again, going back to this thing that Maxine Green encourages us to think about, which is social imagination. And so for us, I think story is a pathway into empathy. I think it's a pathway into understanding and connection to other people. Um, yeah, I think story is a, is a really important, you know, place for us to be. I love that. So let's talk about the art then, right? In relation to story. So how, how would you, you know, you could say that they're the same, or you could say one, you know, uh, is sort of a deliverer of, of the story. How do you feel about that? Like, where does art fit in the storytelling, you know, sort of spectrum for you? Well, you know, I think people think really differently. Um, I, you know, I think some people think in words. I think some people think in time. Some people think with their bodies and sensation and their sensual people. You know, I think with images. And so for me, um, I mean, art is a lot of different things to different people, and there is no way I would ever say this is what art is. Um, but, you know, my own personal uh, connection to art is really those images um, cement particular moments in time for me. You know, they I actually have a terrible memory, but, you know, if I'm making I, I do. I do, awful. too, by the way. Oh. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. I still people I'm like I'm not a big drinker I never did drugs there's no explanation for this I just suck at mem memory oh well, my kids my kids make fun of me because I literally have a hundred and some thousand photos on my phone right. and 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 part of it is because I love to take photos but another part of it is I take pictures of things to remember yes. <laughs> I don't yes. know if you ever do that no absolutely I mean for me images are like a diary of the world and you know they're not just my images like I see other people's images and for me those those call a story to my mind you know and I've had moments as an artist where you know I've put put an image up and I'll never forget I had this moment in Tallahassee I had a show and I think it was City Hall and I was taking the work down and um, a security officer came up to me and she she hugged me and started crying I'm just like what the hell is going on with this woman, you know? And she said, I just, I, I understand what this is about. I really do. And, and I just want you to know, you know, I lived through the same thing. And I was like, what is she talking about? And then she told me this, you know, incredibly personal story that was nothing like my story, had nothing to do with anything that I thought my paintings were about, but they really struck, you know, they struck a nerve with her. And, wow. you know, she walked that, that space, you know, all day, every day. So she really got a chance to look at that work. And I could see in that moment, of course, you know, I didn't dissuade her or say, no, no, that's not actually what they're about. I just kind of held her <laughs> in that moment and said, I'm so glad that my work moved you. But, you know, in those moments when she was looking at those images, for her, they were making a story, you know, and she was beginning to ask herself, what does this mean? Why is this here? I think it means this because this happened to me. So, mm. you know, I think other people's images can be incredibly, um, you know, really powerful. I was so lucky this summer I was at the Chicago Art Institute and I actually went to see the show about comics. Um, you know, there was a couple things in Chicago this summer, but I ended up finding the work of Bisa Butler and thought, 
oh my gosh, this is just striking, you know, and she has this playlist that goes with the images and these beautiful titles and the stories that she was able to conjure in that space, you know, with all of those elements, I thought this is incredible. You know, this to me is like the zenith of phenomenal art making. When you were younger, were you encouraged to be an artist? Did you always know you were going to be an artist? Like, or is this just something you did as a hobby or, you know, how did that, how did that manifest itself? Well, you know, I was really lucky. I, um, I have, I had loving grandparents, you know, I had two amazing grandmothers and this phenomenal grandfather. And, um, you know, he was really enigmatic. You know, he sat at the end of the couch, smoked the cigarettes, listened to classical music, gardened, you know, kind of didn't want to be bothered, but you know, we, we just great image by the way. Yes. (laughs) We just worshiped him. And you know, he had a lot of hobbies. He was a really interesting person. He um, came back from World War II, you know, really was a Buddhist, um, which is kind of different for that time period. And, um, you know, his gardens were incredible. And so he took up painting, you know, he wanted to be, he wanted to be an artist. And I think it's kind of interesting. I think back now. And so he had a great aunt, Irene, um, Irene McCollum, who studied in I think she studied at Temple. She studied, you know, art in the early 1900s. And I still have some of her paintings. They're very like, you know, classically trained artists, um, iconic images. And so, you know, I think he, he had sort of been around it and thought, you know, this is how to be cultured. And of course it's the 1950s and 60s. You know, there is this idea that to be a cultured person, you should read certain things, you should do things, know things. So. He was really interested in the arts and, you know, sort of in a canonical way. Um, So he built this amazing library of beautiful art books. He and my grandmother took me to, you know, museums. Um, She in particular, she was a teacher. And then when I was seven, he he did oil painting and I have his paintings. They're they're kind of bad, but I sort of (laughs) love them, you know, (laughs) and uh, I really wanted to paint like that. I just thought this was an amazing thing. And so, which is, this is so inappropriate. So if there's any parents listening, don't do this for your children. <laughs> I love it. So where we're going. He, you know, he took me to the art store. He bought me this whole set of oil paints. Um, you know, this Hold type. on, how old were you? I was like seven. So oh, you're oil painting at seven. <laughs> inappropriate, incredibly yeah, totally. dangerous, not a good choice. Um, but, you know, he said, you can have black, white and these three primary colors. Here's linseed oil, here's turpentine, here's a canvas and a little easel and, you know, got me a fishing box that I was just, I still have it. I thought, oh, this is amazing. You know? And so I, I, he painted with me, we painted together and he sort of was like, you know, showed me like the Bob Rossi painting tricks. Like, yeah. you know, this is how you do a meadow and these are clouds. And, you know, I painted barns and ducks and dogs and things like that. Um, and I was really bad. I mean, not, they aren't good. And I remember, I, you know, I kept painting. I painted all the time. And so again, inappropriate. I remember painting in my room as a kid and um, you should not paint in your bedroom with oil paint. Yeah, there's no, there's no issues with, you know, um, odor or, or you know, no, fire or anything. It's fine. Yeah. Not safe. Um, But my dad came home from work and I was probably about, I don't know, I was, I must have been 10 or 11 and I'd been painting this horrible painting all day of like this dog hunting with a duck you know think eastern North Carolina um and I said dad what do you think I think it's really good and he was like well Rachel he said (laughs) said, do you think I could be an artist and he said well 
I think some people are incredibly talented and some people work really, really hard. He said, I think you're going to be one of those people that's going to work really, really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Dad wisdom right there. <laughs> you know, my parents don't suffer fools. And, um, but, you know, I actually think that was a great, you know, I never felt like a natural artist. You know, I never felt like, oh, I'm so good at this. I always felt like I'm not very good at this, but I really love doing it. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate to have incredibly encouraging professors, um, you know, who said, you know, you do what you do looks different from what other people do. And that's great. That mean that's what a real original voice looks like. So I was really, really fortunate. But I think that that's always stuck with me. They're like, well, you don't really have any talent, but you work really hard. And so it's going to be OK. <laughs> you know, that's actually really brilliant wisdom. And it's and at least in my experience, it's completely true. Yeah. You know, going to art school, I, I was one of the hard workers, you know, I would, I loved painting mm -hmm. and I would went in and, you know, I think in my high school, I was, I was maybe the quote unquote best artist, right? But when you go to college, though, your class is full of all those best artists. And I remember my first painting class and just being blown away of like, oh my goodness, yeah, this, I'm not even in the same galaxy as some of these. Um, people and you know at that point you have a choice right you have a choice to either bury your head in the sand or to work harder and I'm grateful that I worked harder right um, and I ended up not being a you know a professional painter but you know it also led me to design so oh absolutely I think your your dad's wisdom and even in that you know I I've walked in a room and some of the people I've admired uh, who are designers never went to school they just are naturally just visually can see things and put them together in a, in a really beautiful unique yeah. way and I admire that so i i there are some people who just have this innate incredible aesthetic sensibility you know my sister-in-law is one of those folks and she i mean i just watch the magic she's an interior designer that she can make happen in a space and i think i would never have seen that you know she has this sort of future vision where she can look at a pile of bricks and you know within 10 minutes she has a a, <laughs> a castle it's i mean it's just incredible that kind of vision and to be around people like that i think is is so inspiring and i don't think it has anything to do with education i think in some ways people just have these innate aesthetic senses and they you know they really it's different it's a it is a real talent yeah um, no i agree with you i also agree with the fact that if you want to be a writer, you have to write. It's just not going to happen magically, right? You're not going to take a course. Suddenly your first piece you, you write is going to be brilliant. Um, there might be brilliant moments in there, right? Um, same thing with, with art. In fact, if my wife listens to this episode, she'll laugh because I've been uh, threatening to get back into painting like a lot and I have yet to do it. <laughs> but I got my, uh, she got me in, you know, the new iPad at the Procreate so I can paint it. Oh. So I have no excuses, no excuses at all right exactly. now because you know you can work on that yeah. um okay well enough about me so i'd love <laughs> to get back to uh so uh there's two things i, I definitely want to talk about in our time together so um definitely your latest uh book piece but before we go there i would love to uh, hear about are you still working um in in uh in prisons at all i am you know COVID has just devastated um, folks who are in prison. I mean, just absolutely devastated them. And I know that, I mean, 
Iowa, where I work now, and I've been working for 20 years, you know, the correctional institutions look pretty different compared to a lot of parts of the country. I mean, our director of corrections is a social worker. <laughs> um, so, you know, a, a pretty different ethos, I think, than you would find in other places. I mean, it's still prison, but um, I do think they are trying to, you know, make it the most humane um thing possible when they can. I mean, there's still great instances of horrible inhumanity, but prior to COVID, I was running a support group for um, trans women who were incarcerated in men's prisons. And uh, boy, talk about a very um, difficult position to occupy. Um, and COVID happened and we were just shut out and I have not been able to see my group members for almost two years. I mean, it absolutely yeah. breaks my heart. We've written back and forth. Um, and right now I'm on a, a national research team through the urban, um, the urban league, the prison it's PIRN. I can't remember what it stands for, but we're basically sure. looking, uh, doing, you know, and it's mostly folks from the outside who are interested in abolition or, you know, thinking about what, what do prisons look like? What what is going on in there? What's happening? Could they be, you know, a better situation? And I mean, I think you look across the world and of course I would love to see a world without any prisons where we have other ways of dealing with things or people have all their needs met. And so, um, you know, they don't find themselves in these very terrible situations. But, you know, there are other parts of the world where, um, Prisons are a very different situation than what we have in this country, but uh, I do still work in prisons and I, you know, there's been different times when I've tried to move away from it, um, but I'm always, I always come back and, you know, I find that I really like working with women and, um, and what I really love is when they leave prison and they get out and they're successful and they find love and they build these beautiful families and they become incredible community members. And, you know, that's really what what we hope for everyone. Um, so I can tell you, you know, there's a number of women um, with whom I've worked and it's not because they worked with me. It's just because, you know, they, they, they could got opportunities and, yeah. and ended up getting their lives together. So that's great. Have you explored that question though? Have you explored why you keep going back? Um, you know, I have, and I, it's super interesting. So I think about it. Um, it's kind of hard to make sense of. I. Uh, I think what happens is that I get sort of um, saturated in a way, you know, with just like, so the stories, you know, I've heard from folks who are in prison about their lives are devastating, you know, and, and many of those people have experienced things that no one at all should ever experience, you know, growing up. I mean, whether that's intense poverty, you know, horrible trauma, um, a lack of access to medical care and substance abuse counseling, um, you know, so that they've ended up in these just horrendous positions, you know, when you talk about stories. Um, and I think there are times when I just, I'm so saturated. I honestly, I can't take it in anymore. And so I kind of have to step away. Um, but I do end up coming back just because I do find that one, I get so much out of that experience. I mean, like I said, the way that I've learned to teach is by working with folks who are incarcerated. I mean, they pull no punches. You know, they they critique all the time, which I find very, um, can be really helpful. I also feel that, 
you know, it's a space where there aren't a lot of liberating spaces um, in prisons. I mean, there really isn't. I don't care how quote unquote progressive the prison is. There are very few spaces where people can feel human and normal and forget, you know, what's happening. And so I think um, opening those kinds of spaces up can be incredibly meaningful. Uh, you know, and I, I really get attached to people. I mean, some of the uh, folks at Mitchellville who I've known, which is the prison where I work most often, you know, I've known them for 20 years. You know, they've, they, they've, we know our kids. Um, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Having a little experience in a prison environment. The one element that surprised me was the reality, at least from my perspective, that prison was not set up to help those incarcerated to become reformed or that it was very rehabilitative. Ask Rachel how she felt about that. No, I don't think prisons are rehabilitative. I mean, I think in some ways, you know, they take people out of their lives, which has incredible consequences, but sometimes they sort of help people hit the reset button. Um, but oftentimes people end up going back to the same situation they were in before, which is really oftentimes, you know, a narrative of scarcity. I mean, they might have incredible family relationships, um, which have been sustaining. And I think really, you know, if we want to talk about quote unquote rehabilitation, helping families stay connected or helping people stay connected to their communities is probably one of the most rehabilitative things people can do. Um, you know, I and I think helping people stay connected to their children, you know, when it's a healthy relationship and there's not harm happening um, is also can be incredible. And, you know, people don't recognize that you can be an, a great parent and be incarcerated. Um, you know, those two things are not they don't cancel each other out. So I think, you know, especially when I think about women uh, who are incarcerated, who are mothers, they are often very driven um, to kind of get their lives together for the sake of their families. Um, so I think that that can make a big difference. And many of the folks I've seen who have come out and been successful, you know, it's partly because they've become involved in a healthy relationship, you know, whether that's with their family, whether that's with a job or a partner, you know, or their child. Um, I think that's probably one of the most rehabilitative things we can do for people is to connect them with other people. Yeah, that's great. I, I think that, you know, it's easy for people to, you know, look at things in this sort of Twitter world and be like, oh, they so-and-so probably deserves there or, you know, um, uh, and the reality is, and I'm sure you've experienced this, it's messy, right? It's, it's, um, uh, I think people would be blown away on the range of individuals, right, that are incarcerated. Um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, also in the prison that I, I've been to in um, Dixon, Illinois, you know, um, uh, what was also really troubling is just the, the reality of, um, you know, brown and black people oh. of color there um, and hearing their stories, which, you know, seem like there's no way they should be in prison. No. Um, but again, we could do it's a whole a show very, on that. Yeah. Yeah. Our whole justice system is incredibly unfair. And I think, you know, the other thing you have to, you have to put on the table is victims. You know, I mean, I worked with the Rape Victim Advocacy Program. I sat with many women in emergency rooms late at night, early in the morning, who had been survivors of sexual assault. Um, you know, I've had my own experiences. Um, you have to think about victims too. And I think, 
that is one of the places we really fall down. You know, there are not a lot of options um, for victims to feel any sense of restoration. You know, and prison does not provide that sense of restoration in many cases. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about extreme crimes, um, you know, if someone harms, like intensely harms someone, um, you know, it's really hard to figure out how do I restore, how do I make sense of this? Is there any way to reclaim, you know, safety or that person? And, and there's not, and that's a real hard thing to make peace with. Along with her variety of teaching and making, Rachel has been also working on a few books. One of the books came about from a rumor that she was exploring, and I asked her to share about it. Yeah, you know, I was working, I was actually working on this other book about Detroit, and I was exploring different um, rumors, you know, in black and white communities um, about altercations between black and white people. And this one of the rumors that circulates when there's civil unrest is that a black mother had been harmed by a white person, um, usually a white man. And, you know, sort of tracking that the origination of that rumor down, I came across the story of Mary Turner and Mary Turner, um, her story, you know, she was murdered by a white mob. She was eight months pregnant um, in uh, near Valdosta, Georgia, which is uh, the southern part of Georgia. And about that's, you know, roughly an hour, hour and a half from where I went to school in Tallahassee. Um, I taught at Bainbridge College in Georgia. I was very, very familiar with that area. And so when I read her story, I was absolutely gutted. Um, and, you know, at the time I was also working as a doula. So you know, I was helping women who were pregnant um, in labor. And uh, I could not imagine, you know, what uh, what Mary Turner had gone through, but also that people could be so inhumane to other people, you know, could not, could completely obliterate their humanity, um, you know, and, and not just one-on-one, -on -one, but like a crowd of people um, and so, you know, as a, as an illustration of, um, lynching, I think that Mary Turner's story and then the, the murders of the people that were also, um, killed in that series of sort of violent events, um, you know, really struck me. There was no, you know, when we talk about victims, no, restoration you know the people who did it were known they were never um charged with anything you know they continued to live their lives they were very well known upstanding in some cases well-heeled white men uh you know they were basing their um their violence on this terrible narrative and really it was really about maintaining social control um, really maintaining the hierarchy of whiteness in that area. And so, you know, I, what was the, what was the general, you know, kind of narrative that, that incited the, the, so, yeah. So this, um, wealthy landowner, uh, 
he and his wife are at home. He is so, his reputation for cruelty is so bad that he can't actually find people to work his land. So he has this deal, which is not uncommon at that time, um, you know, with the justice system where he basically goes and bails out um, black men who've been arrested on petty charges and they get sort of caught up in this bail structure where they can't, they have to work their bail off and they, they're basically leased in a way to these white landowners. So he, he's, you know, part of the convict lease system, um, you know, and has a, a horrible reputation for cruelness. So what happens is a man who was involved with him, a, a black man shoots, shoots through his window one night and the bullet goes, the story is the bullet goes through his wife's chest, through her into him. There's two shots and she's pregnant at the time he dies. You know, she barely survives. Um, he has brothers. The brothers find out what's happened. They sort of pull together a posse of white men and boys um, to go and find you know, this person. And what's really interesting, obviously they don't, they don't know who did it. So they begin sort of haphazardly targeting um, black men who have no affiliation with him or some affiliation with him, you know, who have no reason to have shot him. And so there's this literally a lynching spree that happens. And this is very public, you know, hundreds of people are there. This happens over the course of like a week. And, you know, it's kind of every night there's this awful violence. And so one of the people that they lynch is Hayes Turner and um, Mary Turner, his wife, you know, she has two small children. She's very, very pregnant at the time, speaks out and says, you know, we know who's doing this. They should be brought to justice. And then they show up and take her the next day. And they basically drive her bastard husband's body, which is still you know, displayed. Um, I mean, part of lynching is the spectacle of lynching. And um, and they they murder her in just a horrendous way. You know, I won't share it because it's, it's so awful. Um, I would encourage people to read the book, but I will say that, you know, they not only kill her, but they kill her baby um, mm. as well in this process. And um, it, you know, it happens in this area outside of Valdosta by the little river um and you know you can go there now there's a there's a marker there and the marker's been vandalized i mean people have shot at it they've they've run it over um to the point it had to be taken down and now there's a large steel cross um holding its place uh which is obviously much harder to shoot um because it's so you know thin but it's also steel so i think people that decide they want to hit it you know with their um automobile are going to be dissuaded but um that history is still so deeply ingrained in that region um there's really you know there's nowhere you can go you know in alabama georgia mississippi even florida obviously is a huge um you know player in that history of lynching that 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 is not always just you know present and has not you know it's influenced um relationships and communities across the South and in other parts of the country. I mean, lynching happened everywhere. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for sharing that um, story and also doing this piece. And then there's something unique about uh, this book as well. I believe if someone purchases it, what happens to the proceeds? 
the I don't want any money at all ever from this book. And so that money goes to um, the Civil Rights Center in Atlanta, Georgia, um, which is where I think it belongs, you know. Uh, and, you know, that again, for me, I really wanted, you know, a memorial or a monument or something that sort of keeps history alive to sort of benefit from that. And I wanted it to be in Georgia. And I looked long and hard to try to figure out you know, who to get the money to. And the family, you know, Mary Turner's family does not obviously want any attention for various reasons related to safety, but also doesn't want any of the proceeds from this as well. And her great nephew wrote a piece for the book, which is phenomenal. Um, I would encourage people to read it. So, um, and that book, you know, is another thing. It came to me in images. I went you know, I was thinking about her story. I happened to stop at the Women's um, Art Museum in Washington, D.C. And up in the library, they had this beautiful little exhibit of woodcuts um, by a woman. She was Czech. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it just sort of hit me like a bolt of lightning in that moment where I just thought the story of Mary Turner has to be, you know, in these stark uh this kind of imagery, you know, in, in, in linoleum is what I did it in. I wasn't going to do wood because I just didn't know if I could could pull it off and do it well. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's, you know, again, images came to me really. In so, from, so from your perspective, you know, as teacher, artist, and again, I'll say storyteller, why do you believe stories like this are so important for us to um, keep, um, quote unquote, alive or, or share them? You know, what do you think the value of that is? Well, for me, Mary Turner's story, it still resonates. You know, I think about the Say Her Name movement and all of the, you know, women, especially black women who have been, um, you know, killed by state sanctioned violence. I mean, you know, Mary Turner, the people that participated in those lynchings were connected to law enforcement, were, um, you know, had no law enforcement was not going to do anything to change that or say that no you know, public officials, the governor would not take it up. Um, you know, he basically ignored it and said, well, you know, he he said some terrible things. Um, and so for me, that story will res still resonates in, you know, sort of explaining that there is a long history of, um, of violence, you know, vigilante violence um, against uh, black people in this country and um, especially against women who speak out, you know, black women who speak out and their their gender, you know, being a woman doesn't save you. Being a pregnant woman doesn't save you. Um, you know, there is no safety. And so, you know, that was really important to me. So I just sort of I, I think we have to keep those stories alive. I mean, a lot of people have come to me and said, I grew up around there. I went to school there. I'm from that area. I had no idea that this had happened. And it's in the near, you know, it was in 1918. And that was an interesting year too. I mean, the Spanish flu is happening. We have the boll weevils have eaten the crop in Georgia. So economically things are really tough. Um, World War One, you know, pretty interesting time in history. So when I talk about the social contract, that was again, a time when our social contract was really, um, threadbare, you know, and people were asking, mm -hmm. what are we doing here? Yeah, it's, that's, uh, that's one of those moments in history where, um, I remember I was talking to, um, I think it was my dad one time and, and we were talking about the Holocaust and I was asking him, you know, how that impacted him. And, um, 
it hadn't really, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the but the sort of the impression I got, and again, this could be totally my bias and how I read the situation was that you know, he felt that, you know, he didn't have the capacity or people around him had the capacity to do that. And, you know, I, I think about the Mary Turner story and, and even recent events, I'm thinking, um, uh, sadly, um, there's way too many people that would, uh, um, need the reminder of that because we are capable of doing horrible things, right. We're still doing horrible things. And so, um, that's the first thing I thought of when I was, you know, exploring that is I'm like, this, these are the kind of, um, stories that we need to be reminded of because sadly we all have it in us, you know, at some level. Yeah. There, and actually it's interesting that you brought that up. There's a, a wonderful writer and I'll have to email you his name, but um, you know, he writes about the Holocaust and people are like, why would you bring this up? Why would you share these stories? And it's, again, he says, I want this carved on your heart. I never want you to forget what we are capable of. And I think, you know, Mary Turner's story is one of those instances where people say, oh, that would never happen now. I'm like, it, it's still, you know, these kinds of things are still happening. We live in a country where if you are a black woman and you are going to have a baby, you know, there is a high chance that it's not going to go great for you, especially at the hospitals. And there's no reason for, for us in a developed country, you know, with the kind of medical technology we have for that to make sense. But, um, you know, and it, it comes down to health disparities and racism. Um, so, I mean, really, I do. I really appreciate you saying that because that is key. I think we cannot forget you know, what our country has looked like, what we are capable of um, living like, and those instances of human brutality. I mean, and people are the worst animals. They really are. And, you know, we can't ever forget that that's, that's possible. We never want to be, you know, in those spaces again. Uh, man, I'm so grateful uh, we got oh. to have this conversation. Justin, uh, I really admire what you do. And I, you know, I think you're an incredible thinker and leader right now, especially, you know, in the in the field of design and sort of creative thinking. And so it's just such a privilege to be invited to be part of your show today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Rachel, for your exploration of story and to share those explorations through your work. You know, we didn't have time to touch on her love for comics and graphic novels, but check out our website to see all of her work at rachelwilliams.squarespace.com. I would also like to thank Sleeping At Last for providing our show soundtrack, now in its seventh season. For more on Ryan and his music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music. To Design of Zod Engineer, Steve Wick, who loves to paint and watch his collection of Bob Ross videos. Well, be honest, I'm a nature freak. I love to walk through the woods and talk to the animals. Don't tell anybody that. I even talk to trees at times. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell us about our show and stay tuned for season eight coming soon. Please follow us on Twitter at design of podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash design of podcast. See you next episode.